Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the global innovation and research leader for Gateway Sciences. The topic of psychedelic medicines has become part of the global conversation. Also, because of the mental health challenges we are facing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the paradigm of mental health is shifting. Famous universities are engaged in cutting-edge research, hundreds of millions of dollars are raised to invest into psychedelic medicines, and the global psychedelics market is projected to reach 8 billion US dollars by 2029. We are currently witnessing the psychedelic renaissance. However, proponents of psychedelic treatments can still encounter skepticism, which is, amongst other, an after-effect of the so-called war on drugs launched in the Nixon era, the misinformed policies of which are today considered a failure by many. The antidote is easily approachable information. And today's guest, Anna Filippi, is the founder of The New Health Club, the platform launched in 2019 with a podcast and newsletter, creating a space where CEOs, founders, investors, scientists, and therapists from the new psychedelic ecosystem and business could talk about the disruptive power of psychedelics and new markets, compounds, and psychedelic medicine. The New Health Club is currently evolving into a venture to provide access to legal, safe, and vetted psychedelic treatments and experiences. Anna is on a mission to inform and change the narrative of psychedelic medicines and to spread awareness of the power and promise of psychedelics for healing the mind and body. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Anna, thank you for joining us today on Gateway Sessions. It's really wonderful to reconnect with you. Yes, it's a really interesting surprise, right? Since we know each other for 10, 15, 15 years. I think we've known each other for 15 years when we both were working in very different fields, living very different lives. We actually talked a little bit about this before we hit record. And in your case, you actually worked as a journalist, a really excellent journalist, if I may say so. But then you you moved into a completely different direction. I think you also mm -hmm. said once, because journalists don't create anything. First, I'd like to know about this, the creation aspect. And then if you would share with our audience, what steps on your journey actually led you to where you are today? So yeah, as you said, I was an excellent Hollywood reporter. <laughs> and I'm, I can not really complain about this time because I worked for GQ. I was had two up until up to three movie stars per week that I interviewed, obviously mostly male actors because it was for GQ. So the week started with George Clooney and ended with Tom Cruise, for example, once. <laughs> and it was a very interesting, I would say, 
a fantasy because obviously it was always a fantasy when you talk to these people and you thought you had a really great connection but this is what makes a really good Hollywood star that he can actually make you believe that you guys have a really intense conversation and then you leave the room and it was just a fantasy but that fantasy was very important and very interesting for a while for me and uh, yeah and also I enjoyed writing these stories these interviews but like you say at one point I felt like it was just like just delivering this fantasy to other people without you basically interfering in create in, in the creation process of this. And uh, I think then I started, even when I was still in LA, I started to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Funny enough about my time in Berlin that I wrote in LA. So it's probably, I think it's always good maybe to go to a different place to write about your life in another city or another place. I really started to get into, yeah, let's say the creation of a world that was not Hollywood fantasy world. And But at the same time, I realized I had this built this structure. I went to Kundalini Yoga in the morning with Russell Brandt. <laughs> and then I came back home and wrote for two hours, like really fast track on the novel. And it was the first encounter with breath work, you could say because Kundalini breath work is very intense. It's actually a pre-psychedelic experience, which I did not know at the time that I was already on the way to psychedelics just with my breath. And so then once I was writing the book, I realized, wow, there's a really big topic that is just coming out without me actually realizing what I was actually writing about. And I realized, wow, I'm just writing a book about my codependent relationship with a fancy drug addict. Mm-hmm. And once I had finished it, it actually coincidental with me going back to Berlin or because media was not the way it used to be anymore. And I really had to think about if I still wanted to stay in that business. And so I got back and a book came out and the response from a lot of people was that it was a really hardcore, strong story for them that they would not expect me to have lived through, actually. And uh, and then I realized, oh, yeah, they're actually right. And if I read it today, it's almost like impossible for me to read this because a lot of things were actually not fantasy. They were actually my real life back then. And I think a couple of years after the novel, I realized I had done so much therapy, talk therapy, even in LA, I had done yoga almost every day, meditation, like everything that you thought was available, address something, but I still did not know what it actually was. I just knew I got more and more into therapy and more and more I had these conversations with therapists that resembled each other. I just exchanged the therapist. And uh, yeah, and then when I came back that year to Berlin, I felt like really, oh my God, coming back from America, it was really weird and I felt like a total alien. And I just, I think I, that's roughly half a year later, I found or somebody gave me Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, I think, which came out in 2018. And as a good journalist, I researched where I could do LSD trips <laughs> very fast. <laughs> Because I thought it's so interesting because it was just almost like a coincidence because that's the first thing he describes in a book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that mm, 
Okay, so this sounds like he's a reasonable writer, he's established. So if he, the way he described it, I thought it was very appealing to me. And also it wasn't, it didn't sound like a crazy idea to do it. But what it sounded like that he had a lot of insights that he did not have before. And then I actually found somebody in Germany, a, a psychiatrist who would do this with me, which is, of course, we have to say it, it's still illegal to do this. But since he was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, I realized he has a lot of experience. And uh, so then I think in, yeah, in May 2019, I went on this first ever psychedelic trip in my life. I've never done anything before. Afterwards, it was really not really like this, oh, my life is changing overnight and this silver bullet thing and then everything is clear. But and we talked about this before we recorded also, I had I came back from America asking myself why I actually never got married and never had children. And I just really could not answer that question. And in the trip, in the first LSD trip in my life, like I had, I was pregnant with twins and I was married. <laughs> After five minutes, I was like, oh, it seems to mean something to you. But it's so interesting that before in every therapy session I ever was, it never came up as a topic. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever asked me, so could have asked me, why did you never have children or why, what, so why did you never got married? But I never had this conversation with any therapist. And I think after this trip, I started to really get interested in psychedelics. I started to write a little bit about it for Frankfurt Allgemeine back then still. And then I think in 2020, shortly before COVID really started, I went to Synthesis in Amsterdam and did my first psilocybin trip in a legal retreat in, in Amsterdam. And afterwards, I felt like I was really 100% sure that this would be the way, the topic, the career, however you want to call it, I really wanted to engage into. And then I founded the podcast and then things happened very fast because lockdown happened. Everybody suddenly was available. You could talk to everybody. You didn't have to travel to a million places. And also I found, I, I got to know Christian Angermeyer who supported the podcast very early on. And then the real transformation really started. So I would say one year after my first trip. And it also started because I really was able I saw the first time that I really had a very yeah inf impactful childhood trauma that I've never ever looked at until this day when and, I started. And when you say that the real transformation started a year into this, can you describe what actually happened or how that manifested in your life? You mean the transformation? Yeah, after the LSD thing, of course, I was, there wasn't a lot of integration after this. There was a couple of talks, a couple of sessions afterwards. But of course, I read about integration. But of course, I started to really think about, as an example, this topic with, with not having children. And I mean, talked about these journalist times before. And I realized that, for example, back then, I always said, oh, I have to I seem to be a much cooler person if I don't have family and children, because as a journalist and a reporter, it's much better to be independent and always available and do crazy things and go to crazy places. And the first step was realizing that this was just like a tool, basically, 
to prevent myself from really looking into what I actually was really missing in my life. So the first step was basically suddenly realizing what actually, yeah, were, were almost like instruments or strategies to distract myself from myself. And of course, you could say I could have, one could have seen this already while you were doing that job, but I wasn't. So I was very much, or every time something like that came up, I tried to not let, look into it or just push it away or other strategies like, I don't know, just also social media, for example, present yourself as the cool person on social media that you thought you wanted to be. So the first step was basically realizing putting apart what is actually really the person I am and what has been a narrative that you created for yourself for whatever reason in the last the person 20 years. Persona. Yeah, the person and yeah. the persona. And it's so exactly. Easy. It's so easy to fall into the what is trap of the persona and talking about specifically what was part of your persona. And I can relate to that. I spent time in Berlin. We've moved in very mm -hmm. similar circles where if you are not married and don't have children, it can very easily be labeled as cool. It also is cool if that's the choice you make out of your full being. Absolutely. And there's these two polarities. There's the one where it's, oh, this is amazing and cool and independent. And then there's the other where it's, oh, why aren't you? And why don't you have children? So to find your most inner truth between these two polarities and then just follow your own inner compass is huge and is life shifting. But to find that inner truth, we first need to unearth what that truth is, because yeah. sometimes it's just there's you can't even get through to it because there might maybe, as you mentioned, and thank you for sharing that, there might be maybe childhood trauma. And we like to distract ourselves from that pain, from that first trauma by doing things that on the outside may look like, wow, this is a super successful life. Look at it. And I remember also thinking we, we knew each other and I was following your career. I always admired you as a writer and a journalist and also how you lived your life. And yes, from the outside and social media, very much so be like, wow, this is amazing. Look at what she's doing and it was amazing absolutely and you created it all yourself yet you knew that something was missing and so the psychedelic experiences actually help you to reconnect to this deep inner truth and i find it amazing that from <clears throat> Not only is there a self-awareness, a self-integration, if you want to go with C.G. Young, of the shadow parts and embracing mm -hmm. them. So the self-healing aside, there's also a healing that extends from the person that is healed or in the process of healing to the world like you are doing now you mentioned your podcast which by the way i can i highly recommend it and it's not only the podcast it's your your endeavor your company the new health club it's truly unique and can you give us the bird's eye view what the new health club is actually about i guess like you said and thank you that you for promoting it and liking it. I love it. So it was actually a really interesting moment in time, I guess, because, because like we said earlier, like everybody was suddenly at home and 
when I say everybody, it's like all the people in the last two or three years who created this industry, like the founders, investors, therapists, who else, of course, suddenly were available faster and more in a more in an easier way to reach. And Dr. Bronas came also on as a sponsor in the first year. So mm -hmm. then they got me as a guest, Paul Stamets right away and Brick Dublin. So suddenly in two years, we had every person on a podcast who really was either like doing this for 30 years, like Rick Doblin, and uh, were just, let's say, the, the main characters in, in, in this whole new thing, or Paul Stamets or Gabo Mate, and uh, I don't know, Robin Card Harris, Christian, of course, Angamaya. Like, so suddenly I had two years of a weekly show almost without even realizing what we were actually doing the whole time, but we were just putting it out there because it became so interesting and it was suddenly the access to get people was actually very easy once you know how it is you have one person and oh that person was on the show then that person's gonna come on and Michael Pollan was one of the first people and then something very interesting happened that because people started to I think appreciate that we talked about and also I talked about very openly in the podcast why I have done this. A lot of scientists talked about why, what actually could come out of these therapies. And then a lot of people approached us saying, I heard you guys talking about ketamine therapy or psilocybin. I really want to try this because I don't feel I make any progress or my wife is on antidepressants for a hundred years. And I really like to look into this for her and to make it short, suddenly we had this sales funnel for psychedelic therapies because we beginning was like just very very few people just referring to clinics or to collaborators we work with where we knew they were very legit and then at one point i think it was last year we started to collaborate closer with a field trip in amsterdam and sent pretty much like field trip psilocybin one should say or like truffles because this field trip in America's only engaged in ketamine, but back then they also opened up something in Amsterdam. And that became like a first, let's say, stronger relationship to one clinic or provider. And we have then, we've actually, we found a couple of people that we actually collaborated with in the same way. And, and now, of course, at one point you want to have your own place where you're going to do this, which we're going to develop next year. But I think the interesting thing, like the bird's eye, is that it became a sales funnel and also is becoming a sales funnel for psychedelic therapies. On the non-medical side, I have to say, more like on the, I don't want to say recreational side because that's not really what it is, but I feel like there's always something in between a strictly medical model and a recreational model, which there isn't a name for it yet, but I feel it's somewhere in the middle often. But that exists too, that market exists too. That's not straight, either people just looking for a fun retreat or suffering from severe depression. And, uh, and I think now it becomes like the whole company becomes this funnel, but it also becomes a tool to... I want to say reintroduce psychedelics to society because we had two workshops in, in Miami at, at Wonderland about 
mainly about the topic, for example, how it is if people experience a trip with a mother with a facilitator who talk, speaks in their mother tongue. And we had a guest from in, in a workshop, uh, Yuri Blokin, who is actually in Canada, very successful tech entrepreneur with the app called Homecoming. And he's looking into building the Ukrainian psychedelic society. And now we collaborate on something, how to bring Ukrainian people to a retreat where they actually have the experience in their mother tongue with a facilitator that speaks Ukrainian. That's same that. thing. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with Iranian women, but since we all know what's just happening right now, it's interesting because I really realized this also in my own experience that, I mean, I always had the LSD thing was in German, but everything else was always in English, like going to a retreat in the Netherlands is everybody's English or speaks English and there are a lot of Americans. So you trip in English, <laughs> you could say. But then at one point, there was this great facilitator woman from Germany um, and she lived in the Netherlands. She spoke Dutch. And I was like, oh no, she's actually German. So then we started to talk German. And, uh, and then in this trip, I had where she facilitated my experience, I had a really strong, let's say, you could say like German content coming up. And you could also say I saw a lot of Nazi things mm -hmm. that I've never seen before because it's Sunday there was the German language. And this, yeah, so that's this something. Makes so much sense, Anna, because first of all, the mother tongue, this is this is how we learn to express our needs, and then also how to vocalize our emotions mm -hmm. at a very early stage and important stage of our life. So it makes complete sense to connect such a healing journey with the mother tongue. And what you just mentioned about imagery of the <clears throat> Nazis coming up, which you haven't had before, <clears throat> also is completely fascinating because we have of course, we have nurture the things that are brought to us and that kind of mint us in our sense and our psyche. There's imprints on our psyche in this life. But then there's also nature in the vein of epigenetics. And both mm -hmm. you and I are German born. My father was actually born in 1935. So he was a little boy throughout the war years, oh, wow. and then the hunger years. And there is a lot of trauma that I think is still present in the German psyche. And also in the way certain things are dealt with in day-to-day -day life. And that Germans may not even be aware of. Like in my own experience, for example, I've had lifelong anxiety that via ketamine therapy, actually my, my baseline of anxiety has been vastly, dramatically, positively lowered. But this perpetual feeling that something terrible is going to happen, always expecting the worst and also in a sense, not being able to let go of things like I tended to hoard because you may need it at some point. You the t-shirt with 10 holes in it. I may yeah. need it at some point. <laughs> so, no, so this is but this can come, you know what? This could actually, it's so interesting you say that because I'm convinced this is related to Second World War. Let's keep everything, don't throw away everything because and this had nothing to do with sustainability at that point. No, it's just really like also like for example, even with eating. When I had dinner or lunch with my grandparents, 
you had to eat the whole thing because yeah. you don't know what's going to come like tomorrow. Maybe there's another bomb attack and then you have nothing to eat. Yes, absolutely. So. I also, for, I was always blessed with a really good metabolism. However, I often for as a child, as an adult, I would eat way more than I Me actually too. needed calorically or way post the hunger and even satiation. Yeah feeling yeah. and i i have a I, I feel that is definitely tied to this part of epigenetics that i just mentioned and what i also find remarkable in germany what i just alluded to is that you can still sense this trauma and whether for example also in a sense of guilt i personally do not believe in collective guilt especially not for generations after, if you look at somebody who's 20 years old right now. However, I do believe in collective responsibility and making sure that certain things, terrible things never happen again. And I think a big part being collectively responsible is also dealing with trauma and acknowledging it. And I think that For example, if I look at my father's generation, there was just so much that happened and an entire generation experienced trauma that they didn't even talk about it. You swept it under the rug. You just kept going on with your life. So I'm really curious from your perspective, you're in Berlin right now. You spend a lot of time in the US and the work that you do, you different countries, different geographical and historical psyches, uh, so to say, dealing with this emerging market, this renaissance of psychedelics. How do you think Germany is compared, let's say, to the US with regards to opening up to psychedelics? Where is the public opinion currently and where are the policymakers currently? Let's start with the policymakers. Said this before, like there was this really interesting moment, was it a couple of weeks ago, where we learned that cannabis is going to be legalized in a certain mm. gram, kilogram of, I think, 30 gram of possession, as, as far as I remember. I think it's 30 that you can possess and it would be not criminal, like would be decriminalized then by then or like even legalized. And uh, I think this will have a huge impact in Germany because it was always like, I feel like the last years, even like the the minister of, I don't know how you would call, say this in English, but the Drogenbeauftragte, um, um, how would you say this? The, the From the government, the person who's in charge of the whole drug, war on drugs in the country, like the legal, the decriminalizing questions. So they would I always, yeah, one point it's going to happen, but you felt like never, there's never, something's never, it's not really going to happen. It was always like some blah, 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 and then nothing would happen. And so that's an interesting moment right now where you can see, okay, this is progressing. And then in terms of psychedelics, there's this one politician from the FTP, from the Liberal Party, who even before FTP came into office, was actually trying in the party to encourage more psychedelic research coming more from a business point of view. Like he realized, okay, there will be many companies. This will be, you could say, this will be a new pharma industry, which it will be also. And he was encouraging more research. And and then FTP came into office and he also 
became more important in the government. And so he actually now is in charge of the minister ministerium that is actually also responsible for giving money to clinical trials in Germany for psychedelics. And the Charité, for example, in Berlin has four trials running right now. The Charité is a really big and important hospital. Yeah, and very always, I mean, there's this show on Netflix about the Charité, which is very interesting because it was always like a, I mean, like a hospital, it sounds so small, like a empire almost that was very important for progress in terms of medical innovations, you could say. And now they have, I think, four trials, like for MDMA, psilocybin, they did something for compass pathways. Then, of course, two, two psilocybin trials they're doing. And then I think even DMT is like the next thing. So there are things moving and on, let's say, on, on, on the surface, but also, and this is what we feel very strongly, you could say from a customer base that is really interested in microdosing, for example. Mm -hmm. And we get so many requests and messages. Yeah, I want to do this. I heard about this. Where can I go? What can I do? So I'd say, like you say, like a younger generation that's now in their 30s, roughly. 40s, they still have pretty much the old narrative with the war on drugs. And you get an addict when you do this and LSD makes you an addict and all these kind of false informations, basically. But the let's say, I would say roughly millennial generation has a completely different idea around psychedelics. So mm-hmm. it really starts to look into it as a tool for experiences, spirituality. But also, I would say the the main thing, and that is, of course, very hard in Germany, I would say even hard in Europe, is to understand that we can now, let's say, cure addiction with drugs. So that's what, if you tell this to somebody, it's like, what do you mean? This makes no sense. So this whole idea that actually, why did we call these substances drugs? How did this even happen with the war on drugs that Richard Nixon initiated in 71 and just to, just this thing that like a lot of these substances like mushrooms and cannabis, even ayahuasca is like often in, ingrained in a thousand year old tradition of indigenous peoples, which is now coming to the surface. I think most people never heard of this. And I'm honest, I have never heard of this until two years ago. There was nothing I ever read about that came even close to explaining to me that the Greek culture that where our European democracy is based on was basically entertaining kind of a Berkheim outside of Athens. Yeah, called Eleusis. Yeah. And so all of this knowledge is rising to the top. And I think we can agree that there's a worldwide decolonialization that is just happening. And a lot of people don't like that. Just look at the football thing that's happening now in, in Doha. Like it's a really big, topic and people are not like oh it doesn't matter i'm just going there it's football it's a really big conflict yes. around this thing people all are- these yeah and all these conflicts that are there were always conflicts they're rising to the top and i feel psychedelics have a lot to do with that that people are really starting to not that people do psychedelics who see these things but there's a new openness and a new kind of almost like wave wherever it comes from and then COVID certainly contributed to this I think 
where people really or next generations start to look into things that they're not okay with anymore. Mm -hmm. And the moment psychedelics come into the game, I think your awareness to look into these things is even becoming bigger. So there is a connection, I think, between this colonial climate and psychedelics, basically. Yes. Yeah, thank you for your perspective on it. And I think it's, I also believe this is related and psychedelics are not for everyone and they're not necessarily a panacea. However, I do believe that what we're seeing when there is a, a crucial number of individuals who, whether it's, let's say, via certain breathwork practices that yeah. literally free their mind, or whether it's people partaking in where these therapies are legal, let's say like ketamine in the US, or you go to Mexico where it's legal and you do ayahuasca or iboga or such. And this crucial number of human beings who have been exposed and are exposing themselves to literally mind opening and healing substances, that shift in perspective, you cannot change. And it also permeates, it will ripple out to everybody and come in touch with. And that's why we're also seeing, for example, what you just mentioned, that people around the globe, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, this was in a sense, yeah, yeah. long been coming, but mm. it seems like all of a sudden, no, they're not okay anymore with people's freedom of expression and freedom of mind and freedom to live in a way they choose is suppressed in certain parts of the world. And or even if it's within our own cultures, we still have a lot of work to do ourselves in a lot of different realms. But the awareness that it's not okay, the awareness that we have a right to, in a sense, it's biological freedom, it's freedom to explore and heal and know our psyches, our minds. I think it's it's truly, if you don't want to call it revolutionary, it's evolutionary. And it's quite possibly the next step in human evolution. And you said that a lot of these substances, medicines have been used for hundreds or even thousands of years in certain indigenous cultures. There is a vast treasure trove of knowledge, which actually brings me to a topic that I think is very important when we're talking about medicines. Let's just pick ayahuasca because it's been at the forefront of many discussions media you hear about it all the time since a few years so the people who have been cultivating this knowledge for many generations and how to bring this medicine to others how can we make sure that indigenous people for example are fairly integrated and also compensated in this process where these medicines are brought to more people in the world outside of these indigenous communities? Yeah, I think there are already a couple of American companies and funds also who immediately would look into a reciprocity program from, let's say, that a company that is in a space is offering and in the meantime, in the last few years, like some people became thankfully visible out of these communities. For example, also Michael Pollan had one episode on his Netflix show about AOD and San Pedro, where he basically spent the whole episode, you could say, with indigenous peoples. And they explained what it actually meant to them at one point. 
And once it got criminalized, what it also meant to them that it was affecting their mental health and that it was always a tool that they had to work on their mental health. So the topic is actually, again, it's touching again the idea of the colonial, Jesus, the color. Decolonialization. I'm not Decol sure. Yeah, decolonialization, exactly. So, this idea, I think, is behind a lot of these new developments in making indigenous peoples visible who actually saved the tradition of these medicines for thousands of years because it was given to them and their ancestor gave it to them. And this whole story also around Maria Sabina, the woman who actually, you could say, introduced magic mushrooms again to the Western society. And I think there are even companies who are starting to work, indigenous peoples in South America, to co-create almost like or co-found companies with them. And so that personally, I think that is super interesting. And I think this might be also rather the future than just having them as a beneficiary of some investment or something. Yes. And, and I know, um, yeah, I know from, I had the privilege of meeting some leaders of the Kogi tribe in Colombia okay. a while ago. Mm -hmm. And so I know that, and these specific two men shared that they just have had really bad experiences with people outside of their tribes coming in and wanting, whether it's resources of that are material or resources that, that are wisdom related, and basically just taking it and then running with it and making a lot of profit with it while leaving the tribes behind. And I'm certain that's an experience that's not does not only relate to the Kogi in Colombia, but that probably relates to many indigenous tribes around the world, making sure that doesn't happen and regaining also the trust of these people who have basically kept these traditions and this knowledge alive for so many generations will be crucial. You mentioned it before, reciprocity. Exactly. And then I think another interesting thing is that, and there's one really great author from the Zeit who actually is researching around this. So he's going to South America to do ayahuasca, but also like to look into tribe cultures for a while. And he actually visits also shamans who are actually educated to look into, let's say, the dark side of shamanism. And that's a super interesting to me because I think very easily we have this picture of the Western world. Oh, we fucked up, so now let's go to these people who we suppressed for a thousand years, and then we just take their stuff, and that's going to be so healing for us. Right. And then we can actually ignore them again <laughs> once they healed us. And I find it so interesting that it's almost like a specific way of being arrogant to just actually take or make them responsible for our healing because we are not capable anymore of healing ourselves with our tools. And I think that's a really interesting aspect also that this culture is not only based on, oh, let's heal the Westerners and that's all we actually here for. So that it's actually a way more elaborate, specific and also, yeah, almost like a bipartisan culture. It's not only good and, oh, we want to help everybody, which is a 
as a strong culture always is, that it has two sides. It has a more complex and difficult idea around it than just like healing other people. And that is something that I also find very interesting. Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's, I mean, there's really, there's fantastic books out there if you want to learn more about ethnobotany or yeah, exactly, uh, shamanism, yeah. people who have mm. worked like the Cosmic Serpent author is Jeremy Narby. And there's also great books on the fiction side. Uh, there's a book by Graham Hancock called Entangled, which is a really great read. He actually also dives into this darker aspect of shamanism or working with these medicines and uh, yeah definitely an aspect to also keep in mind the world and then also just because i forget it so i think the latest not the latest but the next generation voice to me that's very important is somebody like Sutton king maybe you heard of her she's this young new york based indigenous woman who is really speaking out for her people and she's on all these conferences she's part of the american psychedelic community now and i just really think the way she operates she's good at social media she's she knows how to address these things in the right way she has her own powerful voice and i think her model could be something that at one point could also reach like a, I don't know, like a more European centric problem around a similar thing. And I always wonder if we quickly come back to Germany and something I never really thought about, but there was this movie recently about the DDR, like the, how do you actually call this in the in uh, English again? Yes. When formerly Germany was divided. So I can never remember how you call it. It's so weird. But the, the, let's say so it used to be Germany. Germany, right? Yeah. And the movie basically said, or was called something like the land that doesn't exist anymore, something like that. And it was about a fashion magazine in the 70s or 80s in East Germany that was this little enclave of creative people. And so until politics prosecuted everybody and killed even some people and then I was like I thought oh wow this is so interesting because there are so many people in Germany who were born in East Germany but it doesn't exist anymore mm -hmm. and suddenly I was like wow this is a whole different epigenetic trauma which is also like the whole why is it that there's so much right-wing movement in East Germany why is this still in 10-15 years why always the worst things are happening there and there were so many explanations around this why it would be like a people would not make enough money and this is kind of the reason like with the nazis people were poor and then right-wing politics or polit politicians could actually rise but i don't really think this is the explanation i think it's really something that's connected to an epigenetic problem and this is something that like Sometimes I think, like, wow, there could be a person like Sutton King speaking out, coming from an East German perspective and just saying, okay, look, we don't, our country doesn't, ex or the country where I was born doesn't exist anymore. So who am I then? What am I supposed to do? Why am I not, I can't go back home, for example. And I think this is something that will probably show in a lot of countries that don't exist anymore that got invaded or kind of exploited like so many countries in the world mm. and i think this is something that will 
on a global basis at one point will start to show. And yeah, and then that's going to be interesting how psychedelics will play a part in also multi-generational question, actually, for mm -hmm. example. Yes, I, I spoke recently to a, uh, another podcast guest, Marik Hazan. And he, I am Marik, okay, sure. Yes. Yeah. And he actually said that he's been saying for a few years now that let's say 10 years from now, 10, 15 years from now, that young people will actually demand to have MDMA-assisted therapy with their families to yeah, work on sure. certain dynamics and traumas. Yeah. And I find that thought very interesting. And trauma, in a sense, is also a disconnection, an uprooting from our whole self that happens at a certain time. And so reconnecting is absolutely crucial. And in order to reconnect, the narrative needs to get changed. And it is changing in a lot of places in the world. Yeah, but I think also it's it's good to be, you bring us up because I think, and that's not only happening in Germany, but also in Germany, that on the state level, it might be like, oh yeah, we have to look into this and there are like clinical trials and let's wait. But there's a whole development of decentralized healthcare that's happening. You could call it like that. And for example, a, a great company like Journey Clinical in New York has created like a, you could say like a decentralized ketamine clinic that is just connecting therapists and patients all over the US that are not, that don't have a lot of, or you would have to live in a big city to really then go to a ketamine like LA, New York, no problem. But what about Ohio or Wisconsin? It's a state, it's not a city, sorry. <laughs> like smaller cities, right? And uh, I feel like this is something that's very interesting and it's becoming stronger that people would say, even here in, in a country that is not very, doesn't like breaking rules or anything, more people would say then, okay, if I don't want to wait until the state allows me in five years to maybe have an MDMA-assisted therapy. So I either do it underground, which is sometimes not such a good idea, or I just go find a solution to go to a country where I can actually do that already. And that is something, it's the same kind of crypto and currencies. But this development of decentralization, I think it's much stronger already than we think. And I feel also that why in politics it becomes so much harder to centralize things and to have this one leadership model, it doesn't work anymore. And that's, I really want to say this since we, we talk so much about Germany in this, like one of the things that's also coming up as a topic in terms of German sea level and leadership is that the next generation especially, but also a generation now in their 40s and 50s, seem to be very, to, to have a problem with leadership in Germany, also in companies. And I was on this retreat at Synthesis with C-level people and founders and NBCs, and it was about the topic of leadership and psychedelics. And so we did the first round, the, the smaller dose. And afterwards, I had this, and I never made this connection. I, I realized well, I also shy away from taking responsibilities or like in a company, because my idea of leadership is immediately connected to this word of Führer, of like the leader of a country. And I, I don't have anything to do with it. And 
a lot of people start to talk about this, that the idea of the German leadership is immediately connected to the Nazis. So there's no other vision for it. And also the word itself, it's unpleasant that you don't even want to say it, the word Führer, which everybody understands. You don't want to have anything to do with it. And in this psychedelic experience that a lot of uh, some German people had on this retreat, it was actually something that they realized the first time that the idea of German of leadership in Germany is still so much connected to this old trauma. So there can't be like a new model of leadership that's rising to the top almost. Before the wound, before the trauma is yeah. not healed. It's exactly. so interesting yeah. how deeply ingrained that still is. And it's so important for a country like Germany that has risen over the shadows, that's a functioning and in a sense a thriving democracy and currently a light also in a sense in this world, it's really important that if you look at a country like Germany to be a strong, positive leading force in the global community is vital, and especially if you watch the developments in many other places of the world where actually the polar opposite is happening, and we need countries and also individuals to stand up for democracy, for mm -hmm. elevating and healing each other. So if we talk about so the company and workplace culture and talking about people taking responsibility, how do you think psychedelics can transform this company and workplace culture? Just, uh, just planning a retreat around this topic, actually. And in the research, I had this quote from this German psychologist saying, in Germany, leadership means being hard. And that's mm -hmm. it. That's leadership. You're like a hard decision maker. And that's leadership. And uh, I think the most interesting thing will be, first of all, that we see, okay, look, all these, there are absolutely new requirements that are coming towards us for a leader, which is, as we know, pe people who lead a big company need to have compassion, which we saw in COVID, because if you didn't have compassion for your people and for your employees, you could just close everything because they would just be terrified and not being able to to function anymore because it was such an unpredictable weird time so this is the one thing that has to would have to change and as we know psychedelics or psychedelic therapy and experiences are really mo opening most people up to more compassion and understanding for other people even the ones that they might not have anything to do with before so th that's one thing and uh, then of course Another thing I personally find very interesting is the new ideas you get, or you could say like <laughs> business models <laughs> that you get in trips that seem to be like super crazy in the first place when you talk about them in integration. Then suddenly they make a lot of sense or they bring you to a solution or to a new perspective of your company. And that is something that will become very interesting, I think, in the future or is already, but it's becoming something I think that's going to be important for companies, let's say startup business models that are not your classic German middle-class company. 
But even there, it could be an interesting tool, right? Bring them into the, ne the next decade, for example. And then the third thing is that, and I, I really feel that this is interesting for the country that the leadership is happening in, that the collective trauma can be addressed with these kind of, let's say, even maybe at one point, team experiences or something. Because I feel like in German companies that are, let's say, also very specifically working in Germany with German products for a German market, as we all know, a lot of these very big German companies, they all have this history of mm -hmm. using workers from concentration camps to bring them into a lot of wells and the post-war economies and you can go on youtube and there will be tons of documentaries about all of these people it's not just oh this is like a secret thing it's like out there and uh, this is something i find very interesting how this has to be resolved in a way that is unresolved until now and uh, and i think my theory is that it's still why right, the german economy is so anxious and so or a lot of german companies are so anxious and so hierarchical because this problem is not resolved and it's still there. And we don't want to go into names now. I think everybody knows what we're talking about. But it's something that is so crucial to me that it's also not very long ago as we think as, oh, that was like in the 50s. That's not really long ago. Mm -mm. And uh, there was a very interesting moment recently about this, around this uh, woman, Verena Balsen. She's the... I don't know, granddaughter now of the founder, and she's 27, 28, and she was yes, part of already... Basel, just for the audience who may yeah, not know, it's a yeah. huge company. They yeah. produce some of the most well-known cookies in all of yeah. Europe. I think you can also get yeah. them in the US, so huge. It's like one of the biggest German companies. And, uh, and she was already at the C-level and collaborating with the CEO, and her, her father had put her in, in, in a very high position very early on. And then recently she said, even in Bildzeitung, she said that at one point she had a full-on panic attack and she realized she needs to take a step back and she needs to leave her position. And uh, first of all, I thought it was very interesting because now you could argue that maybe that has something to do with her epigenetic problem at this point. Or her mental health has caught up with her at some point, And then she stepped back. And the interesting thing is she got a lot of shit for this, that she took a step back and she got criticized. Like she would be a spoiled brat and she would need to relax from her hardcore surfing camp. You could say German media made fun of her because she took that step. And that to me was something that was so, it was still so much in this old thinking because you should have said, okay, this is actually a very interesting new leadership that somebody says, I'm battling a mental health moment. I had a panic attack. I'm going to find out what it is. Mm -hmm. And then I come back in a different way, or I find out something that is maybe has to do with my own leadership structure that I have not figured out yet with 27, one also has to say it's a very mm -hmm. young age. And that was something that showed me again that this is not met with with the openness that should be actually expected now. And so, yeah, and I think that if we keep talking about Germany, and I think that this goes for a couple of other European countries, 
there is still this kind of if you watch the crown it's also very interesting to where you see it too it's like you you're gonna ignore yourself until suicide basically mm -hmm. and okay this is nothing new that exists already and even with big bankers and entrepreneurs but the new interesting question is why does it even has to stay in you that long and why couldn't you just look into these things that made you actually end up in this position and this is something that will become very interesting and also where a younger generation will not like her example will not just accept it anymore and just risk her yeah her mental health to just stay in the place where she's supposed to stay I think it takes, yes. And I think it takes an enormous amount of courage to step forward and say, hey, first of all, I'm not okay. And then I'm going to take a time out to look into this, why I'm not okay. And I'm going to take care of myself. And especially when you're under public scrutiny, like this young woman, Verena Basen, was and is just by the name of the family, the, the hugeness of the company, the economic impact that company has in Germany and the political affiliations. Kudos to her for having the courage to step forward, yeah. acknowledge that, and then acting on her own inner compass. And you're very right, especially I feel having my roots in Germany, I feel especially in Germany, we are raised, our generation at least still feels that, I'm 45 now, we're raised to function. And even if that means functioning in a dysfunctional system, mm -hmm. And I also find it highly interesting what you have so aptly observed is this mm. new perspective on leadership and where the old paradigm just doesn't work anymore, where it's this one lone, let's say, lone man, lone person at the yeah. top pyramid. And if you're at the bottom, <laughs> you're basically okay. <laughs> you have to deal with what you've dealt. But also at the top, it's very lonely there. And I think we're really living in a day and age where it's about awakening and supporting and helping grow the leaders in each other and whatever field or function we individually can do that. And a large part of that is healing, is stepping right into the center of whichever wound we may have individually or on a larger scale culturally. And I think what you're doing with the New Health Club is really amazing work on the one side disseminating information and also helping to change the narrative destigmatizing psychedelics what you do in person what you do in the podcast interviewing some of the leading voices in this field what you do with the workshops and also connecting people with centers or treatments or practitioners what you said how the new health club basically developed into this funnel. And now you actually have a new endeavor, which you alluded to briefly before. But so what is the future for the new health club? You are actually working on retreat, right? Yeah. And I think we have two, let's say for the next year, two, let's say very strong visions. One is, and I'm going to start with the show that we We'll do more live podcasts and live shows, which is fortunately now possible again. And because we had just a couple of weeks ago, the first event with Rock Fielding from the Beckley Foundation in at Soho House in Berlin. And it was the first time you could have, let's say, 
of audience, a live audience. And then we've just very briefly decided, oh yeah, let's just also record it as a podcast. And it was so interesting to have this energy and this whole changed energy because there were people in the room, in the conversation, asking questions and being really focused on what we were talking about. 2023, we will actually also in LA, I'm going to tell you more about it. <laughs> we will have a couple of live shows. So that's something that... I'm very excited about. And then in terms of the retreats, we're just working with a Canadian partner on a new model that we probably will be launching in the next months. Also a, a simple single pilot project where we actually look into, you could say curated or customized retreats mm -hmm. in a way that we already experienced a little bit in, in the workshop in Miami that One thing, for example, is to put together a retreat that is hosted by a facilitator in the mother tongue of the participants. And for example, we have a Ukrainian partner, Yuri Blokhin from Homecoming, who we're actually talking about how to launch this as a first yeah, pilot project with, with Ukrainian speaking facilitators. Same thing with Farsi facilitators for Persian families at the moment who are really having a hard time with things happening in Iran. So this is going to be one thing. And uh, But then also something like another topic I find very interesting is psychedelic parenting. Also younger parents, I would say, rather than people in their 50s or 60s that are actually started to have almost like a practice beginning maybe in covid to actually help themselves with psychedelics as tools to get through this very difficult situation everybody was in. And out of this came actually for some young parents, something like an, like an insight that they had so much more compassion and understanding for their children or their spouses or their family that was super difficult before so leading back to what you said how to at one point you're going to trip with family it's going to be very interesting because there will be traumas that your parents affected and their parents and so on and so we're going to work on a couple of very specific curated retreats and then hopefully by the mid of the year we will have a whole yeah, our own retreat with a strong partner. And I find very interesting how this can be connected to the show and to the content, because I feel like also that's my observation in the last, let's say six months that even on the already big platforms like Netflix and Apple TV and everything, it's already, you can see how even big Hollywood names suddenly do a whole movie around their mental health and not just, oh, I do yoga and meditate. The best example, I think, is this Selena Gomez movie on Apple, Me and My Mind. And I was like, wow, as when I saw the title. And the interesting thing is the guy who did the movie is the guy who did In Bed with Madonna back then, who was maybe the first movie about a very personal behind-the-scenes persona or a person you, you could say that's the first celebrity mental health movie <laughs> like in terms that we see her behind the scenes and what she likes and when she's like she showed some feelings in that movie certainly and uh, that's a very interesting thing to see that 
even in the already established media, this is becoming content-wise also something where also a lot of unexpected teen stars or people are really saying what's going on with them. And then when I was in Miami, the what's his name? Aaron Carter died with 34. And it's, whoa, what is what is happening to this generation also who doesn't look into these things in that way, like some other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's, yeah, sorry. And also you have people, if you look like artist Megan Thee Stallion, who, for example, yeah. she has a song, Anxiety, where she yeah. just puts it all out there and basically talks openly via the vehicle of storytelling that is music about herself and how things are affecting her. And I, I think that's quite amazing, especially yeah. for people to step forward, women like her who work in a certain uh, environment where usually it is not only asked from you, but you also probably feel like you have to put out the strong, invulnerable front. Deep respect to her and other artists who also use their platform. Yeah. Just, yeah, and we just had Patrick Cox on the podcast, who you might remember as this super famous shoe designer, like Oasis wore that Spice Girls, like everybody. So at the whole cool Britain time, everybody wore Patrick Cox. And he was really, he was his own company and one of the most successful, like independent from big fashion brands company and best friends with Elton John and everybody, Liz Hurley. And at one point he he really got into a big depression. And I would say, I mean, he says that by himself, that without finding 5-MeO-DMT, you probably would not be alive right now anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that's another thing that's interesting to me, how, let's say, also this generation of, you could say Generation X people was an, such a, if you look at, if you look back at all these products from that time, like Brad Easton Ellis and all of these 80s movies, some of them sure great. And I like Brad Easton Ellis, but it's also a very hardcore life to live for the next 20, 30 years. That is a nihilistic existence, basically. And so I think no human being can sustain that forever. And But especially this generation did not have any kind of tools available besides talk therapy and antidepressants. And it's interesting that maybe you remember Elizabeth Wurzel who wrote Prozac Nation and her name in the recent months is coming back into the discourse because she was one of the first people when she was very young writing about an antidepressant that was taking America overnight. And then she, I mean, she, unfortunately she died also like when she was 50, like just one or two years ago because of breast cancer. So her story to me was always something like, whoa, somebody got very early on what actually was happening to her, although she was also super successful and bestseller and everybody loved her. She looked super cute and attractive and bestseller, but still she couldn't find the real kind of solution for her. And I think this is something that's really super sad for that generation sometimes, I feel. And the generations who are coming now are just really are not accepting anymore this kind of destiny almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's great. Size, and this yeah. one size fits all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Ellen Vora. She calls herself a holistic psychiatrist. And she also very clearly says these, these drugs, 
let's talk, for example, about Prozac. They have their place and they can be very good. However, she has a huge problem with people having to take these drugs in perpetuity for the rest of their lives where they just mask symptoms, but there is not a healing at the root cause that's happening. And she also said, we learn as psychiatrists to prescribe people these drugs. We do learn how to get them off them. And so I think that we have now the great opportunity of, we have a great pharmacopoeia of drugs that are very effective and can be very helpful. And as long as you don't see them as, okay, this is a rest of your life type of thing, but to use what we have here with the new medicines and work out therapies that are also very individualized and you use whatever would work best for a certain individual, whether it's a compound, whatever the medicine, the drug is, whether it's a very specific therapy, but to move away from this one size, one model fits all that can just be so detrimental for the individuals and for cultures as a whole. Yeah, but I think that's one thing. And then I feel like everything that Gabo Mate talks about, like this really unpacking of how trauma works mm-hmm. and how it is really so visible in your body that you had no idea ever that it would eventually mean that symptom coming out of your trauma that your brain doesn't remember anymore. To me, I have to say, this is the most crucial change and like a medicine that's coming out of this let's say trauma unpacking and trauma thinking because until now i would say let's say also if you read like unusual newspapers the health section or everything that there's no this in germany one has to say and i'm sure america and the mainstream media is also similar there's still not really a lot of insight in terms of where certain sogenannte in Germany like Volkskrankheiten or typical <clears throat> diseases are coming from. And it's funny when I watch Hulu here and I see all these, <laughs> all the advertising against with all these medications. And it's so crazy to see, especially the advertising for antidepressants. And that's for the German market, yes? No, also not Germany. It's not allowed to do that on TV, but like on in the, in American TV, you still have these these tv spots for mm-hmm. that advertise antidepressants mm-hmm. and then how they tell the story like why somebody has to take it and how not now how they feel now once they take it and then like in one second they have to say the side effects very fast that they have to say it <laughs> so it's really interesting how this is still the main narrative and the big kind of four of the next years is really to reintroduce a a trauma-informed mental health and physical medicine. So, and I think, and and, and I think what will be really crucial for governments and policymakers to understand is that even if you just look at this from an economic perspective, a population that is doing well mentally and physical, and that can where individuals can actually live their highest potential in a sense, is much more productive for the society overall than going on with people who are basically hobbled, dealing with certain ailments, numbing symptoms, and really not functioning at not being able to perform, have peak performance. 
the emotional suffering and physical suffering aside. And if you look at the money that is spent on these types of often chronic issues, I think as societies, as cultures, we would be thriving so much more, even just economically, if we opened up the avenues for true healing. Yeah, even these numbers, how much it will cost or would cost a country if there's not really something happening in terms of solving this mental health crisis. And this will be, if somebody's like, well, I'm not convinced, then you could always say it costs your country and it costs your companies a lot of money and a lot of competition and productivity if you don't really look into this. Right. And besides that, of course, it's a very, it's just, I don't, and that's the interesting thing with human beings. It's just, I think at one point, they just are not willing to wait any longer like we see now with people heavily looking into microdosing and especially in, in when it was this two rough years in the pandemic with lockdown this is when everybody i mean in berlin a lot of people started to grow their mushrooms <laughs> and people who i never thought would ever do that so um, it's really, really interesting. interesting i would have never yeah. thought that yeah you would be surprised <laughs> 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 not me though. <laughs> other people but yeah and it was and that was a moment where obviously everything was upside down and that's when I felt there was a whole movement towards okay so we're not going to wait until this and this and this is happening I need this now I need to go for it I need to create this by myself no there's a lot happening not only in the space there's a lot happening in public perception and also public yeah. action we're seeing a lot of policies are getting changed. We just saw in Colorado. And in America. It's... So there's a lot of really interesting and good stuff happening. And part of the momentum is certainly also the work that you do. You, um, and you. <laughs> and well, you too. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I'm really curious to see what is going to develop with the retreats you're planning. And uh, so for people who want to learn more about you and want to connect with you and do a deeper dive about everything, you know, that uh, the new health club is offering, where can they find you, Anna? So the website is the new health club.de still. Then on Instagram, the new health club, LinkedIn, or under my name on LinkedIn, I post also a lot of things that we're doing. Twitter, <laughs> let's see what that goes. <laughs> we're still on it. <laughs> and then next year, of course, you have to go on TikTok. There's no way around it. But our main channels, I have to say, it turns out are LinkedIn and Instagram. And then, of course, we have a great newsletter on Substack also that you will find on our website. And then, of course, still the main thing is the podcast, the New Health Club on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to think all the other platforms. But these are our two main platforms. Anna, so. it's been really fun and such a pleasure to reconnect with you. I'm really grateful totally. you made for us. And I can't wait to reconnect in real life. So hopefully. Yeah, in March next year. Yeah. March <laughs> in Los Angeles. Fantastic. Much gratitude for today. Much gratitude for everything you do. And this was really a delight. Thank you for coming on Gateway Sessions. Thank you. It was great. It's really great. Great questions. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.